Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. 1019 is right around the corner, and that's DET Day. Get it? 1019, just like 1019 WDET. You can celebrate your favorite NPR station with your gift of $70 or more, and you're going to be entered to win one of seven Third Man Records turntables. You can make your gift now at WDET.org. We are still trying to reach the goal from our fall fundraiser this year. We want to thank everybody who has been participating in contributing to making that goal. But if you have not yet made your contribution, now is the time to do it. You can go to WDET.org. There is a big button, a big red button at the top of the page with a heart on it, and it says donate. You click on that and decide how much you value all of the shows and other programming that you hear here on WDET and make your contribution. Uh, We are also, of course, celebrating 70 years of WDET here on Detroit Today and talking about the value that we try to bring you each weekday morning when we try to put together incisive and informative conversations. And joining me now to talk a little bit more about what goes into preparing for Detroit Today is one of the people who does the work around here. Anna Marie Seisling is one of our producers. Anna, welcome to the studio. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, and listeners may recognize Anna's voice from Saturday mornings when she is in studio. uh, Bright and early. That's right, uh, for Saturday morning edition, weekend morning edition. Uh, But most of the time during the week, she is working on getting us ready for Detroit Today. Anna, you just recently joined us as a producer. Talk about the things that you do during during the day to make sure that this show comes off in the way it's supposed to. Well, my time at WDET, while I'm a recent addition to the Detroit Today team, I've been here a long time mm-hmm. and I've been working in a variety of positions here for years and You know, working with Jerome Vaughn in the news department, I understood how to respond to breaking news. He taught us how to do interviews in a thoughtful and concise way. Uh, Then I ended up coming on to the programming and production department after uh, doing some weekend edition stuff, which I'm still doing Saturdays. And, you know, in my time working with you and Jake, um, I really have realized that there is so much room for nuance on a show like Detroit Today. And that's something that I feel like is personally missing from the rest of the radio dial. There's nowhere else where, you know, we have the ability to have this discussion among ourselves and think, are the listeners going to want to talk about this? Yeah, they probably are. So, you know, let's maybe shuffle some things around and let's change up the plan and make this whole hour about something like education, about something like politics, whether that's national, local. There's a lot of room at WDET, especially on Detroit Today, to have the conversations that require a little bit more than just a soundbite or a two or three minute news story, you know? So that's something that I'm personally really thankful for. And also, this week feels really special because we're able to celebrate WDET's rich history of music. And, you know, I think that today's show is really sort of symbolic of all the different things that we're able to do on mm. Detroit today. We're talking about this study that came out from the Annie E. Casey Foundation and sort of what that suggests about children of color in the city and some of the disadvantages that they are up against. And then we're talking about Miles Davis. Where else are you going to hear both of those things <laughs> in one hour, right? That's right. Uh, Anna is also also the person who, when you, the listeners, 
give us a call and try to join the show. She's the first voice you hear, and she's the one who gets you ready for the conversation with me. Talk about the conversation you have with listeners before I do, Anna. Well, I first things first, I love our callers. <laughs> I really, I mean, it's such a point of pride, and we all kind of talk about it after the show wraps every day. Oh, man, did you hear that point from, you know, Felicia, or did you hear what Charlie <laughs> had to say today, or what about Mike's point? People are really paying attention, and that's the beauty of having a show like Detroit Today. We don't re-record. Really, all I'm doing when I talk to the callers is tell me a little bit about it. Maybe I'll push back a little bit, kind of help them hone in on their comments so that when they get on the air, they're really just, they're coming in hot, they're giving you their point, and they're really adding to the conversation in a really rich way. And I can't imagine Detroit Today, it wouldn't be the show that it is if we didn't have these callers participating. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay, Anna Marie Seisling, great to have you in studio and uh, get back to the phones so that you can get our callers ready for That's today's right. show. That's right. And last thing I'm going to say, seven seven people stepping up this hour. That is what we are hoping for. And I'm really confident that we can do it. So go online to WDET.org and get in on this chance to get one of those third man turntables. That's right. Uh, this, uh, we would really love if seven of our listeners, as Anna says, would become contributors and especially people who are not contributors now. If you're somebody who listens to this show, who enjoys the show, who values what we're doing here, but you're not someone who's supporting it, this is the time to make that change. You go to WDET.org, uh, click that donate button at the top of the page and become part of the show in a different way than you have in the past. Seven people this hour. That's what our goal is. Okay, up first today, a new study on childhood poverty was recently released by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And in it, African-American and Native American children were found to be seven times more likely than white kids to live in high poverty neighborhoods. And in Michigan, one of every two African-American children are living in concentrated poverty, which means living in an area where most everyone is poor. The problem is especially relevant in cities like Detroit, where the recession hit communities hard, then they were just not ever able to fully recover. So what does this mean for kids of color? And what can we do, along with community leaders and stakeholders, to try to address this problem and all the negative impacts it can have for our young people? Here to talk about this is someone who spends a lot of time thinking about these things. Skillman Foundation CEO Tanya Allen Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Yes, it's I appreciate always great you. to talk with you. Um, uh, you know, Tanya, I have to say, I am tired of seeing studies like this. I'm tired of having conversations like this about how many kids, and especially kids of color, live in poverty, especially here in the city of Detroit. And one of the reasons I think I'm tired of it is because... I feel like we know how to solve this problem. I feel like we know what the issues are and what we need to do differently. And the problem is that we just don't have the wherewithal. We won't commit the resources. We won't be consistent. We, it, it's about us. It is about our inability to focus in on this problem. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. I think um, as a state, because uh, this is these are really statewide numbers um, as well as Detroit numbers. But Detroit has been majority children in Detroit have been um, above the 50 percent mark for over 
10 years in the city. So it is not Which means something, more than half of the kids in yeah, the city exactly, live in poverty. Exactly, exactly. And then 82% of them live in concentrated poverty, meaning that even if their families aren't poor, the outcomes that many of these children will experience will be similar to those kids who have less resources. And it is time, quite honestly, for us to resource our children. We need to do it at a state level and we need to do it at the community level. And one of the things that we have to talk about is this issue of equity. In our state, we have not given the children with the greatest need the most resources. And every state that has solved or Um, made progress on this issue have been very intentional about that. So in uh, the state of Michigan, we've had an achievement gap that has uh, been stubborn. It's been the largest achievement gap between African-American students and white students in the country. And it has not shifted or changed yet. We haven't changed the policies or the practices. And uh, one of the things that I love about our city Um, in particular, is the can-do attitude. And I think that we, you know, roll up our sleeves and we pitch in to make sure that kids are going to be doing well. But I just would say to all of us is that we need to keep doing that. But we have to understand that we can't program our way out of this. This is a structural issue where we have to deal with policy and practice. We have to change our behaviors. Um, We often talk about what it will take for the city to recover And we want to talk about all of the economic things we do. And then we say, let's wait on the kids issue. You can't wait on that. Like we we have to do that right now. And that's why we ask this question all the time is how are the children? Because that's the true bellwether um, in determining how the city is doing, how it will recover and whether that recovery is sustainable. Yeah, You know, I, I wonder how much of what we see right now with kids and black kids in in the city of Detroit is about the legacies of systemic discrimination and racism in this in this country. I feel like you can't have this conversation without trying to put it in that context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that um, when you look at what has happened in our state, particularly around financing, particularly around our school systems, we know that that has a legacy of racism that's connected to it. And But what I would say is, what are we going to do about it? And so, um, you know, I've been working on a couple of initiatives that are, I think, are really important that can help us structurally deal with it. This effort called Launch Michigan, which is pulling together state actors across um, this great state, essentially, who are talking about what will it take. And one of the big things on that agenda is that we have to deal with these equity gaps. We got to figure out how to make sure that every kid in the state is getting adequate resources. But we also need to make sure that every child that needs more resources um, are getting them Mm -hmm. so that they can achieve academically. And that's not something that has been a part of the debate around education in the state. Like we want to shame, you know, we want to pick winners and losers. And what I say is let's build a system where everybody wins. Mm. Uh, And that has not been part of the conversation. And we have to reshift that. And then the second is, is that we know that kids who have greater needs, they need opportunities. And we have essentially cut off the opportunities for kids across um, the city and across the state, across the county. Um, One of the things that the foundation cares deeply about is after school programming. 
And that really means high quality youth, uh, youth development opportunities before school, after school, during the summer months. We know that we need to have caring adults and uh, skill building and recreation and whole child well-being issues right in front of children. They should not have to pay to play, literally. We need to make sure that these things are available and that we offer it to our young people if we want our state, if we want our county and our city to do well by children. Yeah. Yeah. My guest is Tanya Allen. She's the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation. We're talking about a report that says half of Michigan's black kids live in concentrated poverty. It's even higher when you talk about kids in the city of Detroit. Uh, This is not a new problem. This is not a report that's telling us anything that we haven't known for a long time. The question is, why haven't we done the things that would make those numbers look different? Why aren't we doing the things that would lift more families and therefore more children out of poverty? If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, tell us what you think about poverty. Tell us what it looks like, perhaps, uh, in your life, in your neighborhood. Are you someone who lives in one of the neighborhoods in Detroit or in southeast Michigan that has this sort of high concentration of poverty, lots and lots of families living below the poverty line. Uh, Tell us what some of the struggles look like on a day-to-day basis in those neighborhoods or for your family. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Tanya, before we go to the phones, I want to talk about how this looks different than it did 40-some years ago. Uh, It's hard to even think about that. When we were kids here in the city, you know, I grew up in neighborhoods that didn't have a lot of resources, and families weren't always above the poverty line. But the opportunity looked different then, and there were lots of ways to get to the things that would give you the, the, the chance to, to grow up and do the kind of things that, that you and I do now in the city. Is it that we need to go back to that kind of infrastructure and rebuild it? Or are there different challenges that we have today in terms of creating those opportunities that, that helped people like us? Well, I think we do. In some ways, we have to go backwards to go forwards and uh, forward rather and I often say, like, you know, I learned how to be a swimmer. I learned how to be a mediocre basketball player, <laughs> and, you know, a terrible uh, baseball player. <laughs> I was a strong academic uh, games player. But my point is, is like all of those things, even though, you know, I l- grew up in a pretty um, resource deprived household. I had access to things that helped me be a good analytical thinker, that helped me show leadership skills, that helped me understand and build resilience that if you're not good at something, it doesn't mean that you don't stop or that you don't, you learn the practice, you learn the power of growth, right? All of those things are things you experience as a young person that shape who you will be as an adult. And you get those things through structured opportunities that we call after school programs. Mm -hmm. And those things just do not exist in our city in the way that we need them to be. So yes, there are lots of great organizations that are doing those kinds of programs now, but they're having to figure out just like you doing fundraisers Mm -hmm. to just sustain the work. Um, uh, And what we find is that it's, there's a lack of stability there and we need young people 
who are growing up in places where they don't have as much financial resources, the one thing they need more than any children is stability. And we cannot have these programs being weak and vulnerable because we're, we don't think of them as um, important. We have to make sure that they're available. It needs to be structural. Um, the city needs to offer extra programs. The uh, school districts need to offer these programs. And we need to make sure that they're going to be there for the long term. So increasing the opportunity and making sure that young people see what kind of opportunities it is, what kind of careers. I think a lot of times we, you know, it seems like the conversation we've done, we've made the conversation only about like how young people in Detroit move from um, high school to career. Mm -hmm. That's a great thing, but we need to make sure that they understand that there is college available to them. We also need to help them understand that they can create businesses. They can become a YouTuber and make more money than both of us, (laughs) 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 which is their own business, their own brand. (laughs) And we, you know, young people in this city are so talented. They're so smart. Um, and they have aspirations like every single child in this state. And we need to make sure that they have an opportunity to create a path to achieve those aspirations. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Adrian in Detroit. Hello. Uh, the lady from Skillman, I love you. I never thought about <laughs> the, the solution to the problem. But I love this after-school thing, but also the mental health dollars are important. We must educate mental health services for not only the child that we see in front of us, but also the circumstances to go back to after school. We have children that are living in homeless shelters that are coming to school. Can you imagine not having a stable environment at home and have to come to school and we thinking we're believing that these kids can learn. Nope, we have to address the whole child. And this after school means that we can capture some of these kids, keep them with us for a safe environment until they can get home. So they're with us more than eight hours. So we are the ones that they look up to and respect. Mm-hmm. It is our job. It is our job to show them that we love them unconditionally, no matter what they look like and where they come from. Yeah. Adrian, I really appreciate the call. Uh, in the comments. Tanya, do you want to talk a little more about uh, this idea that you have at Skillman to essentially create a millage-supported after-school program network in the city? It's a it's a different way to think about it than we have yeah. in the past. So what Skillman has been focused on is figuring out how do we create a sustainable funding source for after-school programs? Because there are many cities and communities that have done it across the country. We just have not done it in the state. Um, actually, the state budget has fewer than a million dollars dedicated to after-school program that isn't a pass-through through the federal government. Mm-hmm. That's a shame, right? And so we're not, this foundation is not allowed to support a millage, but what we did do was to support the research. We gave the research to community leaders and community leaders around the county have basically said, we're going to take this research and we're going to try and put this issue before the voters. Uh, and uh, this, the effort that they're leading is called Wayne Kids Win, and people can find that on their website at waynekidswin.com. But it's basically leaders in this community who have decided that we cannot um, put children on the back burner. Uh, we have to put that at the forefront if we really want to tackle these issues and give the young people the supports. And then I would just say for the caller, this issue you're talking about is absolutely critical. You know, young people are experiencing significant trauma uh, in our city and across the county. 
And we need to make sure that we're dealing with the whole child, that we give them the kind of emotional supports that they will need um, and to figure it out. I often tell this quick story about when I was a kid, I would walk to school and I remember going um, through the blocks that were safe and then blocks that didn't feel safe. And I would run past those blocks and I would feel I would be so scared. And even as an adult, when I tell that story, I can still feel the emotion and the adrenaline. Today, that terrible block that I used to think of in the 1980s is some of the best blocks in Mm. Detroit. Mm. So just imagine young people are walking and experiencing that every single day. So we got to give them some beauty. We got to give them some joy, some opportunity. And that means that we got to be we got to make sure it's structural and not by chance. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about poverty, African Americans in Detroit and the state of Michigan. Stay with us, and stay with us on the phones. Tom and Jean in Detroit, Mike and Fraser, Deborah in Detroit, Don in Novi. We will get to you next. Stay with us on Detroit today. <laughs> This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Tanya Allen, the president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation. We're talking about a report that says half of Michigan's black kids live in concentrated poverty. Uh, That number goes up, of course, when you talk about the city of Detroit and other urban areas around the state. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what this looks like from your vantage point. Do you live in a neighborhood that experiences this kind of concentrated poverty? Are you somebody who's trying to find opportunity to get out of an area that is experiencing this kind of concentrated poverty? And what do you think we ought to be doing that we're not doing in order to make that possible for more people? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Deborah in Detroit. Deborah, what's on your mind? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's disingenuous to talk about what we need to do before we deal with the elephant in the room, which is the money that is going to the many, many charter schools and the way that money gets to the children itself. I'm not against charter schools in general. Mm -hmm. We need to consolidate. First of all, we had 7,000 districts at one time. We got it down to 500 before the charter school bill passed. It's now over 800 and it's growing. So if you think of all the money that is going to administration, uh, to all these different over 90 schools in Detroit districts. Mm -hmm. So number one, we need to consolidate. Number two, we need to look at how we lease school buildings. If you look at energy, free market energy, they cannot lease indefinitely. If they build facilities, um, they can make 10% and over what the cost is, and that's it. Once it's paid for, you cannot keep charging customers. Right. In charter schools, we can lease indefinitely. They buy a school from Detroit for 200000 and charge 396000 a year, Frontier International. Um, number Three, if we don't, we need to consolidate, we need to change how we lease, and we need to require that um, 50, at least 
to begin with. 50% of the money coming to the schools go to instructional costs. Yeah. Deborah, if you I think of I, how I, much I, money they get. And sure. we get less, but then in Detroit, the children get even less right, that right. is going to instructional. So, Deborah, I appreciate the call and, and all of the ideas there. Uh, Tanya, talk about the work. You guys do a lot of work with schools, public schools, charter schools, yep. independent schools. Uh, are we spending the money the right way? Um, Deborah is absolutely right on this. Um, I call it education sprawl. That's what we have in this state. So if you think about those 800 districts that she's referencing and about 300 or so are charters and 500 traditional, every single one of them has a C- CFO. Every one of them has a CIO. Every one of them has a curriculum director. And when we start, and then that's not even counting the ISDs that are on top of that. So we are heavy on infrastructure, which actually prevents more, it prevents dollars getting to the classroom faster and more directly. And I think that that has to be a priority um, if we're going to solve for this. But we can't ask um, districts to do less if we're not willing to uh, give them more. So we've also, at the same time, decreased funding into education. So we have to figure out, like, how do we structurally make changes that create the efficiencies, repurpose those dollars, and then we also have to figure out how to bring more revenue into the situation. Mm -hmm. It's not a just, um, let's look for efficiencies. Districts have been doing that all across the state. Uh, They have been some of the most creative districts, but what we haven't seen is mergers yeah. and and structural reforms and that has to come from leaders in this state we can't ask districts to just do that by themselves if we really fundamentally want to change and get education dollars redirected to the place where they ought to go and that's in the classroom with the teachers and the students yeah it's and it's hard i think there's a natural tension between the idea of all right, I've got my local district and we have control of that district. uh, And now you want me to give that up and share power with, you know, maybe people in another city or another part of the city. That's a real hard sell with with communities, but uh, they aren't thinking about the financial implications of what we're doing. I mean, this is a state with far more districts than um, almost any other state. Uh, in in the union, and that matters in terms of wh- how much money gets into the classroom. Yeah, well, I think part of what happens is that we forget that education, public education, is about um, ensuring our shared fate, and we not have start, just our own, not just our individual community's fate. And so, at some point or another, we have to decide as a state that we want to do well for all kids. And so this notion that the state hasn't thought about how African-American children are doing academically or Hispanic kids are doing academically or kids who have um, special needs, um, we have not focused on them. And because we've um, basically made it so disaggregated Mm -hmm. and we've parsed um, funding for all of these different things. And as a result of that, the state is poorer it's not just that, but or the people, the young people who do well, they're the ones who want to leave our state. Um, we're not as attractive because we're not um, investing we're not in investing. the talent and that makes this place a t- place where talent wants to retain. Young people are leaving. Um, and yes, we've had some, you know, burst of activity in Grand Rapids and Detroit and the like. Um, but we have to make sure that that's sustainable. 
Uh, and it's not just those two urban centers. We have to make the whole state um, accessible and um, desirable for young people if we really want to change it. And education is going to be critical to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Deborah, thanks very much for your call and your comments. Let's go to Tom in Northwest Detroit. Tom, what's on your mind? Hi, Steve, and good morning. Hey. Uh, hi to Miss Allen. You know, Steve, from my vantage point, education is your way out of poverty. If you're impoverished, and if you've got an education, and a great majority of the cases, it'll keep you from becoming impoverished. Uh, you know, because, you know, back when I went to school and dinosaurs roamed, roamed <laughs> the land and pterodactyls ruled the sky, I mean, you know, I took advantage of an education. I had enough brawn and just a little bit enough brain that I won a football scholarship to Wayne State University. And, you know, I couldn't fathom, you know, with the way I'm living right now today, had I not gone to school. Yeah, and I mean, you know, okay, college is costly. I went to I went to Detroit Cathedral, so my mother and father paid for me and my brother to go there. But, you know, I, often, I mean, you can't beat education in terms of, you know, when you get ready to go out into the work world. I mean, you've got something, and you've got a meat cleaver in your hand in some instances that you can go out there and you can be competitive rather than just either having a high school diploma sure. or if you're a dropout and dropouts going to file 13. Yeah. But yeah. Um, And, you know, also the program that Ms. Allen mentioned about, I think it was Wayne Wins or what have you, the article that was in the paper the other day, uh, I spoke with Eddie McDonald, who's involved with this. Mm-hmm. You know, they said it was going to be two meals. Eddie told me that it was going to be one meal. You know, for, you know, when it go, hopefully when it goes on the ballot, yeah. and I'm going to vote for it. Within reason, anything that I can do to help a child, you know, m- make it better for themselves, I'm going to do it. And let me yeah. say this last thing, and I'm going to go. If you look at how much it costs to house a prisoner in prison, sure. compare that. I think it's round figure, maybe about $37,000. Now, compare that to what they used, I mean, you know, the money that they give a kid to educate. Right, right. If we just flip that equation, I don't know, maybe we'd get some different outcomes. Tom, as always, thanks very much for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Don in Novi. Don, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to say I heard earlier that it was possibly the legacy of racism that adds to this poverty in the city. Mm-hmm. And I've just, I'm, I've lived around here and been down in the city a lot. I think how long has Democrats been in control of the city? Probably 60 years. So are we saying that Democrats are the racist? And maybe if we've been having Democrat policies for 60 years and they haven't been working, maybe it's try to stop try something different. Hmm. Well, Don, so Don, do you think that the the people who control the city and manage the city do that in a vacuum and that the things that happen at the state or the national level don't matter? Oh, I think that uh, you have to look at the whole uh, picture, but who's running the city? I mean, are you saying that people from outside the city are going to impose something on the city? Well, I can give you... Can't impose. You can't make people do something they don't want to do. It's got to come from the inside of the city. Hmm. Well, I mean, I can give you a good example of the way, or a way, in which policies that get enacted outside of Detroit have affected Detroit. So, if you go back to the 1990s, the way that the state funded things for cities gave cities 
their their share of tax uh, tax receipts in, in the state was a thing called revenue sharing, and cities like Detroit, uh, the larger cities in in the state, all got hundreds of millions of dollars as a result of the equation that they used to determine who would get what. Uh, over the last uh, 15, almost 20 years, we've lost more than a billion dollars uh, in, in revenue sharing just in the city of Detroit, just in the, in the city of Detroit. So if you think about the things that we might have done in the city that we didn't have money to do because of that kind of policy, uh, I think you get to the idea that uh, the things that happen in Detroit aren't just about Detroiters, aren't just about who's in charge. It's about where we live and how we relate to the rest of the state. And of course, the legacies of racism and discrimination don't know borders, right? Uh, the discrimination that that happens because of the legacy of bigotry in this country uh, at the federal level, at the state level, and at the city uh, level, it doesn't have anything to do with who's in charge at this given moment. It's about the infrastructure, the systemic infrastructure that makes it impossible in some cases for people to have equal opportunity. Yeah, I would just say I appreciate the comment. And I think that uh, we often are swing to this notion of um, partisanship. Is it a dim issue? Is it a Republican issue? I think it's really a, this question of uh, will we build a progressive agenda together? Will we figure out how to solve these problems that are holding our state back and holding the citizens in the state back? And I don't feel like we're willing to do that. We often want to talk about who is at fault when right now what we need to be spending our time on is how do we build a solution? How do we build bridges instead of building walls? And that just is not the conversation that we are having in the state or in the country. And so I just refuse to go to partisanship when in actuality we know that what what the outcomes are are embedded in systems. Systems were designed by people. That's the good news. That means that we can also redesign those systems to deliver the outcomes we want. And so this is our moment. And I would just enlist your support and your help in figuring out the solutions um, and not necessarily pointing fingers because I don't think it get us in, it gets us anywhere. Yeah. Okay, Don, I really appreciate you listening and calling in to share your thoughts here on the program. Uh, Tanya Allen, president and CEO of the Skillman Foundation. It is always great to catch up with you here on Detroit Today. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Absolutely. And thank you to all your callers. Yes. Uh, up next, we're going to talk about Detroit's rich jazz history and the role that the city played in the life and career of one of the greatest musicians ever, Miles Davis. We're going to talk with the director of a film about Miles Davis that's showing tomorrow and Saturday at the Detroit Film Theater, as well as the author of a book about the history of jazz in Detroit. Keep on with our fall fundraiser as well. Make a contribution now at WDET.org. Thanks to Paul and Troy for your contribution. Thanks to Mark and Southfield. You are both entered in our turntable drawing. Stay with us on Detroit Today.